Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, welcome back this week to another episode of Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. All right, your beacon for all things freedom here in a crazy world. And today we are going to be getting into... uh, So you've heard the term, all that glitters is gold, right? That's right. So we're going to be making some comparisons here today about uh, the whole idea of buy once, cry once. Before we get too far in today's episode, I'd like to give a thanks to uh, the show's patron sponsor, WeTheProcessor.com. They are a staunchly pro-freedom and pro-2A uh, card processor, no monthly fees, low rates. You don't ever have to worry about being terminated or canceled by your current processor for what you sell. Check them out at WeTheProcessor.com. Uh, if you guys recall, Chad and I did a gun gripe episode where we talked about some very similar concepts, but we didn't really expand into uh, you know too many details. Uh, in this podcast, we really want to dive down the rabbit hole and kind of talk about where that um, luxury and quality paradigm kind of comes together. Um, you know, things uh, that are very expensive sometimes have a very high quality point associated with them, uh, whereby others, other times it seems that um, people charge a lot of money for something that may not actually have the real quality there. So there is certainly a, a thing uh, such thing as you know a, per- a perception That's right, right of yeah, value versus a reality uh, of value when it comes to spending your money on a higher tier type of item. Yeah, I agree. I think that there is a line between um, practical and opulent. Uh, and I'll tell you the first time I've always known the saying uh, "buy once, cry once." But in the in the tactical sense of things, it it really hit because it was when a uh, cry precision uh, came out, and their stuff is is pretty pricey, uh, known as Gucci gear. Uh, but they replaced the the spelling of cry C R Y with cry C R Y E, um, and it was just it just kind of was funny. It was a funny thing because I was like, that makes so much sense. <laughs> like buy once, cry once. But you know. Good when stuff, though. It, I mean, it really is. I mean, again, the, the pri- they're one of the companies that I feel like um, they charge the amount of money they charge, but there's a lot of R&D. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of heavy expectation on the quality of their gear. Uh, and then there's some other companies, like not just in the tactical world, but in general, that may have made quality gear and then kind of it's gone downhill. Uh, and you're really at that point just buying the name. Uh, recognition versus the quality of the gear. But we have some great examples here on the table. And then we also have some great examples that we're going to talk about just in everyday life that can uh, help you guys understand where we come from and why we spend money on specific stuff and how our mind thinks about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You do get what you pay for. And um, I think that there's always that time in everybody's life that they go through, especially when you're younger. And there's always that entry level approachable thing that you can get at a lower price. And uh, the temptation is definitely there uh, to try to you know seek out the lower price item. And um, I think as time goes on, you, you begin to kind of appreciate a little bit of the nicer stuff. Or if you've gone through a few inferior products that might not have done very well for you, you know, you get tired of spending the same money over and over again, and you wanted to spend the money once and be done with it. And uh, my first exposure to really accurate ARs and stuff like that, you know, it was a long time before I actually even owned a factory AR-15 of any type at all. Uh, Most of them I just built, you know, and that's just what I knew, and it just wasn't a big deal. But I took uh, some of those BCM ion bond-coated match-grade barrels that they sell, Mm. And I ordered uh, three 18-inch barrels, and we built a couple of rigs out of them. And uh, I was just so impressed with the quality of those barrels and all. So sometimes uh, the the concept of buy once, cry once can just be, you know, maybe just spending that extra money and upgrading something a little bit. There's nothing wrong with upgrading an existing product, and we'll talk about some examples of that. Uh, But then also the turnkey solution, I guess, would be a gun that, in, in this case, we're talking about firearms, but um, a gun that would definitely be ready to go right out of the box, uh, such as the OZ-9 there. Yep. 
Um, that's a really sweet setup from Zev. I mean, they, they have some nice stuff and that's a really well thought out pistol. And the idea of something like that is it's pretty much ready to rock right out of the box, put your favorite optic on it and everything's pretty much good to go. And it's one money and you're done. You yeah. Know, something I mean, like that. uh, this, this is my EDC. So I carry this every day. Um, great gun. I, I train with it. I practice with it. It's never failed me. Um, this was a gift. <laughs> so, I mean, it definitely, uh, it's super accurate. I put a hollow sun, um, optic on there. It's not the, uh, not the Vulcan reticle. It's this, the V2, uh, but great gun overall. I definitely think that, um, the buy once cry once a Dodge definitely plays in there. Cause it does have a lot of stuff that comes factory on there that, you see all the time on the internet uh, and Reddit and all the threads that people are going in and modifying stock Glocks. I mean, yes, this is probably one of the or, uh, original like chassis system guns. They kind of, that's what they were known for originally. Um, but just the stippling, the lightning cuts, all that stuff that uh, the trigger job, all those things that you're coming out of pocket for on a standard, whether it's a Glock or even now they do SIGs. I mean, sometimes you have other companies, they're charging $900 for, for slide um, cuts and all that stuff. So, I mean, I think out of pocket, you, I mean, if you're buying at retail, I think it's like two grand or 2100 somewhere in that realm. But if you take a regular Glock and you're taking it, you know, $600, 19 and then you're adding the stippling, adding the lightning cuts, adding the RMR cuts, adding the aftermarket trigger and the trigger job. Once you do all of that, I mean, you're really kind of in that same territory as as just buying it off the shelf. I think that there's also a difference in, you know, the way some of the people approach this sort of stuff because, you know, they may not want an out-of-the-box type of a uh, of a thing, right? They might want to put a little bit of money towards it uh, as they go and get the exact features they want, every little thing exactly to their specifications. So. And that way, you could have a gun that's truly unique for you, right. and then spend only what you need to spend and get you know the exact uh, features that you want and nothing you don't. Um, it would be more like with a setup like this, it's great, and there's a certain optimization to this gun that exists for a certain group of people, and there may be some people that may not like that type of a setup. I love that pistol. I think it's great. <laughs> it is great. Um, I sent a few of our guns off to Robar. Now, unfortunately, Robar is not in business anymore. Which is a shame. It's a shame yeah. because they had um, a lady over there that does all the high power work on the Browning high powers. Uh, she did this high power for Brandy here. Uh, the closest one to you there. Yeah. So that one's had a considerable amount of aftermarket work done on it. Um, backstrap stippling. You know, this border cut along the top, it's been cut for combat sites. Um, it's had the uh, magazine disconnect delete done to it, and that really improves the trigger on the high power quite a bit. It's had an extended beaver tail uh, put on it. A lot of people don't notice that it's not a factory uh, browning beaver tail. Um, just a lot of, you know, Nibix components, uh, match gray barrel, bushing and all that. Uh, well, this one doesn't use a bushing, but. Well, anyway, I mean, but it, a really well fit setup and it really is custom tuned. You know, their uh, Robar uh, Robar guard finish. I mean, and factory nibbing. There, there. It was a great company. They did great work. I know they did some really good stuff with uh, the shields when it, when you know they first came out. They were really kind of out there, like doing the aftermarket custom shields and stuff. I mean, it's a smooth gun. The trigger on it is great. It's got a the one thing that I did notice on yours is that it has the stippling on top. So if you wanted to do a press check, that's something that typically isn't, you're not going to find on a, on a 45, but I mean, it, it points great. It's overall, it's a solid, it's a solid, solid gun. I like yeah, it. Yeah. This is a nine millimeter high power. Um, These are all empty by the way, guys. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then like, and on the other gun, the, the BP 10, we've done videos on both these guns, in fact. So if you're tuning in on the YouTube channel and you want to watch full reviews on these, uh, we've done videos on these. And of course, if you're listening on the podcast, go check out um, Iraq Veteran 8888. Or if you're watching, well, here, here we are. Here so we are. <laughs> you, you, you could be watching this on YouTube or listening uh, via podcast. Uh, but there definitely is a quality level that you get if, uh, with something that's highly customized and personalized. Um, the buy once, cry once mentality can go a lot of different directions. You know, uh, you brought along a couple of watches to show off. I know we yeah. talked about some guns and we'll bounce back into some guns as well. Um, but that 
holds true with a ton of other commodities as well. Yeah. And, you know, when you start looking at regardless of what it is, whether it's firearms, whether it's cars, whether it's just everyday things, um, you know, me personally, uh, watches, I love watches, but I'm not an, I don't, I'm not an opulent watch kind of guy. It's like, yes, there's definitely watches that go past that line. So when I think of a really nice high-end Swiss watch, you know, people bag on Rolex because Rolex, you know, yes, their finishing isn't the best. They don't have transparent case backs except for one model, which was the Cellini. Um, But, you know, they're not really known for their finishing work on the inside. But what they are known for is reliability. Um, And quite honestly, if you're wearing a Rolex, like here, uh, we have a Submariner. It's a 114060, which is the no-date Submariner, the classic. Um, and I mean, if you wear this and you're anywhere else in the world, regardless of what country it is, and you find yourself in a bad way, this is your ticket out. There is not a single person in this world that will not do whatever you want to do for this watch. They retail new I think this model is like $8,800 if you can get them new. They're, they're, they're allocated. They're backordered. They're selling it for around 11500 now on the secondary market. So wherever you, if you find yourself in a third world country and you're like, hey, man, I got to get out of town real quick, this is your ticket home. You know, this will get you there. Outside of that, outside of being a commodity, it works. I mean, we have uh, watches that are, you know, 50 years old from like 19... 55, the model is introduced in 53, 54. Um, they just work. All you got to do is keep them serviced, lubricate them, and that's it. Um, you don't ever have to worry about it. Um, buy once, cry once. Like It will last you a lifetime. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of watch. I mean, I, you know, there's probably a time in my life where I thought, oh, I would never buy something like that watch mm-hmm. or buy something like, let's just say, a Barrett M107, which, I mean, you're talking... That watch is the Barrett M O Barrett M one oh seven of watches. Like That's right. they're like the same price. And it's, it's just crazy to think that, you know, some things just cost a lot of money and it's weird. You know, you have to associate that value with what you're spending it on. Now, with that being said, you can probably buy a watch at an absolute fraction of the price of a Rolex. For and sure. It's not gonna have the Rolex name. It's not gonna be constructed like a Rolex and have the intrinsic value. But it's probably going to be one heck of a timepiece. It, it is. And I mean, we, G, a great example of that is the G-Shock. And even G-Shocks, they have opulent G-Shock watches, guys. They have G-Shock watches that are solid gold that sell for $30,000 Wow! <laughs> for a G-Shock. I mean, they exist. They're out there. Your standard G-Shock, like your Rangemans, um, like even those go up to three or $400, which some people would consider, uh, you know, outside of a standard Timex price point, but they all have their function. A good example of that is this Breitling. This is a Breitling B50 cockpit in black titanium. Um, it's a anti-digi watch. So it's as uh, analog and digital uh, chronometer, super chronometer, actually. Um, super. <laughs> yeah, super. But, you know, something like this might, it retails for like right around $10,000 as well. But the re- this is not going to get you out of a foreign country. I mean, they depreciate hard, but you're not buying it as an investment or buying it for that reason. You're buying it because it serves a purpose. So this is, uh, you know, it is a chronometer. Fifteen, It's accurate to 15 seconds a year. This is like an everyday watch. I mean, I know that sounds weird to say. Yeah, for that price point. But it is. I mean, you got guys walking around with, you know, $5,000 Cabot guns, you know, as their everyday carry. So to say that, hey, that's outside the realm of possibility, I don't think so. Um, Some people just want to have something really nice. They do. um, But it serves a purpose because guess what? When I look at my wrist, I know it's going to be accurate within 15 (laughs) seconds a year all the time. You don't want to be 15 seconds late. Exactly. so, I mean, you got little things like that that are buy ones, crumbs, that I bought that watch years ago. And guess what? I haven't had to buy a watch to wear ever. You know, yeah. it's, it's just one of those things. You know, you get a, a really good gun. That's your gun. Like, I'm not a guy that changes guns. You know, I, I'm a creature of habit. That's right. You, you have it. You buy it. You wear it. You use it. That's it. You know, there, there's also a lot of situations where, you know, the whole buy once, cry once mentality can backfire a little bit. You know, and I think that... When you start getting into, uh, let's say, vehicles, for instance, mm. you know, there's certain brands of vehicles 
and certain makes and models of, of cars that you just associate with re- reliability. And with reliability has a value to it that may really outstrip even the monetary value that, that people might associate with the vehicle in question, right? right? So it may not be luxurious from that type of sense, but it has a reputation, legendary reputation for reliability. I mean, you look at Hondas, Honda Civics, Honda Accords. I mean, those are just the workhorse vehicles out there. You know, you can't kill a Toyota. You can't kill a Honda. <laughs> you you can't know? And, and they're not very expensive vehicles. They're easy to work on. Parts are readily available. What's not to like, right? And they don't break often. If they do, they're cheap to fix, and they last forever if you take care of them. Now, you know, I um, I own a, a BMW Scrambler uh, motorcycle. In fact, I'm I'm actually looking to sell my Scrambler if anybody's interested in it. Check uh, Craigslist. To, but It'll be yeah, <laughs> no, it won't be on Craigslist. But <laughs> just kidding. But but anyway, yeah. Seriously, if you want one, let me know. But uh, that Scrambler is a great bike. But one thing I learned is, you know. Because it is German engineered, it's also quite complicated. You know, it's it's not easy to work on. All the tools are extremely specialized. The training is specialized. It uses special fluids, special filters, special charging tender uh, box that you got to buy for it. It costs like 130 bucks. You know, it's just all the extra little things. You know, and it's a great bike. It's a precision type of thing. Like when you were talking about Rolex, I'm thinking, yeah, that's how I would imagine like the inside of the BMW factory to be like, like everything real precise mm-hmm. and like Germans in lab coats walking around <laughs> like yelling at people for doing the wrong thing right. or something. And that's Germans are very precise in terms of how they engineer things and all of that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, I like the bike, but it's one of those examples of, you know, they are very expensive bikes. It's the the Luger of the bike world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could say like, the Luger o- of the like bike world. Over-engineered, yeah. you're not going to, that's something you don't want. We, we touched on this a while back, yeah. um, you know, field stripping a Luger, like, you don't really want to do that. That's not like field level maintenance that you want to do. I mean, pulling them apart down to the tiniest piece can definitely be a little bit of a chore. But I mean, just pulling one apart for cleaning, you know, I think the the biggest issue, not to, to get off on too much of a tangent on that particular subject, but on the Luger, it's just the way that the upper is designed and mm-hmm. the barrel is set in there. You know, if you bend that receiver assembly that the barrel's attached to, that stub or whatever, the, the upper. Right. I mean, you could you can bend the crap out of that thing. It may not go back together. I mean, so they're just they're just really precise pistols. And they really didn't do well in a super, super mass uh, production type of thing. That's why they um, developed the P-38, because they wanted a gun that could be mass produced much easier and less expensively. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't require so much, you know, fine fitting and finely made parts, uh, you know, less uh, machining operations, cheaper materials. So they wanted a gun that could mass produce easier than the Luger. So Um, with the bike... um, When you when you fast forward to twenty twenty one, even twenty twenty, the German engineering side on the on the car side has grown exponentially. It's gotten so much more reliable. Um, and when you look at it from like okay, so nineteen like let's do the nineteen eighties, the nineteen nineties. Like Audi was an absolute joke. Like you, you had to buy two because one was always in the shop. Um, you know Volkswagen. They had like they just had all types of problems. Um, Mercedes, um, BMW in the eighties and nineties, they were like a, a rich person's car, but they were known to not be reliable at all. Fast forward to twenty twenty, and they're probably some of the most reliable vehicles on the planet. Just and I'll tell you why. It's because well, not BMW. They exited F one with Sauber, but Mercedes in particular. I mean. Their R&D department for F1, I mean, they probably outspin all the other teams combined as far as how much money they put back into their F1 team. And it shows because they are top dogs. And they've been top dogs for, I would say, the last three or four years at least. Yeah, always innovating. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, ever since Lewis Hamilton's been on the team, they've just been, you know, the only time they weren't is when uh, Vettel was with Red Bull and he was just laying it to him. But I'm going to get back to that. Um, but they put so much engineering into their F1 cars, and that's a direct trickle down to their road vehicles. Um, everything down from when they were doing the hybrid stuff years ago when they had Kurs and F1, and they had the electric backup, like boost system, all that stuff kind of goes, you find that now trickling down to their their road vehicles, and it lends itself to being so reliable. 
I mean, before you had to change your oil on the dot, you had to make sure everything was done to the T in the manual. And now it's really your service period is one year. So your oil changes, and I don't drive a Mercedes, by the way. I'm just, I know people that drive Mercedes, but I mean, yeah, your service intervals one year at at least. I mean, some people push it out two years. You go in for an oil change and that's it. But the way they have these vehicles set up, they're kind of enclosed. And it, it really is a feat of engineering to see how reliable that these vehicles have become uh, from, say, the 80s and 90s. And it really speaks volumes of where they're, what they're actually using their money for because a lot of teams exited F1 because it's too expensive. But Mercedes kind of held the line and they're reaping the rewards. Yeah, I think that that really alludes to the exact direction I was trying to go in my original statement when I said that, you know, sometimes just because the the buy once, cry once uh, mentality can sometimes sort of fail you mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you might buy something that you have the perception that it's really, really good just because it has a really high cost or it costs a lot of money. And that could just be a brand recognition sort of thing. And then sometimes the really complicated, over-engineered type of product that costs a lot of money. And sure, it's cool because of it's just a nice product or it's a well-thought-out layout in the vehicle or really anything you're buying, whether it's a firearm or a, a vehicle, right, could lend itself to being too complicated and then it's not reliable anymore. So there, there's definitely a fine line between something being expensive because it's just great. It's intrinsically good because it's a good design and that it accomplishes uh, everything it needs to accomplish in a really, um, you know, great way that is very reliable or something that has all the lavish appointments, but doesn't have the engineering um, to make it reliable, just like the cheaper product would be. So there's a fine line. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, low end guns. For instance, uh, to get back to guns for a second, you know, I've seen a lot of firearms that are definitely decent guns that don't cost a lot of money. So you don't have to spend a lot of money to get a great firearm. I mean, Chad and I have done multiple videos where we've discussed uh, the concept of, uh, you know, guns that don't have to cost a lot of money that are still pretty good quality units. And we've put our opinions out uh, about what those guns are and uh, which ones are towards the top of the lower heat, per se. Um, but just because there's a good entry level option doesn't mean that if you don't want to, you know, maybe you want to spend a little bit more money and get something a little nicer out of the gate. And Matt said something earlier that sparked my interest, made me think about this concept. You said, Hey, you know, this particular watch is like maybe four or 500 bucks. And I'm thinking, well, four or $500 is not a lot of money for a watch. If four or $500 isn't a lot of money for a microtech knife. Or a you know real <laughs> yeah. fine uh, you know folding knife that someone might carry or whatever that might cost you know a lot of money. You're talking there's guys buying four hundred dollar knives, four and five hundred dollar watches, five hundred dollar glasses. Oh yeah, expensive tooled leather wallets or whatever. And then of course as a carry gun, of course someone's going to carry usually at least a five or six hundred dollar handgun, like minimum. Yeah, on the on the average. I mean of course you know there there's your bursas and you know, high points and other lower cost guns. And I'm not saying that's not a good means of protecting yourself, but I think most people that own a high, a high point or a Taurus or a Bursa or something like that might be in the ballpark where they're like, Hey, this is gets me into that entry level, but maybe I want to spend a tiny bit more money and possibly get something maybe a little bit better in the future. So, I mean, it just depends. Yeah. And I mean, I think you said something there about uh, high points and and bursas and Tauruses. I don't personally know anybody that that carries a high point. Uh, not on them. I know plenty of people that keep them in their house. Like it's a, it's a it's a good economical house gun, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm an aesthetic kind of guy. So like to me, they just look kind of wonky. That doesn't mean they still won't kill you dead because they sure will do the job. Um, but Taurus, man, they've, they, they've had some, some QC, QA issues, but if they get those worked out, they, they, they're pretty good. I mean, as Taurus long- has done a great job of reimagining their manufacturing capabilities. Yeah. And um, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to step out of turn and say that that they're under new management, but they, I think they're under new management. They've been well. The thing about Taurus is they've been, they've had a few management changes uh, over yeah. the years, and 
you know, I, I've been in the corporate world and the thing about corporate restructuring is anytime a, a manager comes in or a new director or uh, a, a high level executive comes in, their mindset is to shake things up and also to leave their mark on the company. And usually what that means is they they do one executive action within the company. So even if they exit the company two years, two months, you know, 20 years from now, that's going to be their change to the company. Sure. So I'm not going to name the company that I used to work for. It was a national company. But, you know, every director that came in was always like, hey, we're going to change this. And it was always a national change, whether it was signage. They wanted to change all the signs on all the stores. So that way, when somebody in two years goes, Who's, whose stupid idea was that? Well, their name was attached to that. So that's their legacy. Or if it was a really good thing and, and exactly. ended up being a good change, they can go, oh, who was responsible for this amazing change, yeah. you know? So to put that idea of yeah. the mindset of those those leaders when they go into the company, same thing with the firearms industry. If you see some really wonky idea, idea come out, it's either hit or miss. That has that person's name attached to that change. That's why they do it. It's not because it's in our best interest. Yeah, I mean, and I think too that a lot of it is when you're talking about, it, especially a new gun design, for instance, and I don't want to get too far off in, in, into this tangent, but uh, it is worth noting, yes. just because of what you just talked about, is that a lot of people, uh, when it comes to what companies are doing, right, if they put out a new product, if it's something truly new, like say it's just a completely new gun design, uh, something that nobody's done before. I mean, look at a lot of the new Caltech designs. Mm-hmm. It's very forward-thinking stuff. You know, uh, those designs are really crazy. They're radical. And they're radical, yeah. And and you don't know if someone's going to love it or hate it until you get it out there and get it into people's hands. I mean, I I know that probably back when Gadsden first uh, made the original Glock, there's probably a lot of people that were like, okay, what the heck is this? Like, is this ever going to be a thing? Oh, these aren't going to last. It's going to break in 100 rounds. Yep. And, and there was all these you know, myths that were perpetuated about Glock. Oh, you can sneak this gun through an airport. I remember that. And no one will (laughs) catch you. I mean, maybe with the technology they had back then, you could. Mm -hmm. Possibly. Yeah. But now, I mean, there's no way. Even if you disassembled it, there's absolutely no way that, that with the modern technology you're going to be able to sneak a gun onto a onto a, a plane never mind the barrel or any of right. the hardware or the trigger group or but the anything difference else of opinion metallic. changes drastically so people did obviously warm up to Glocks because look at them now I mean they're in use everywhere by police military law enforcement I think civilians. that's the reason why yeah it, I mean it, they're in use everywhere so they vetted themselves of course. But it's not like they weren't met with scrutiny when they were first introduced. So any new gun design is always going to really have to live up to the scrutiny of the end user. And in America, I'm proud to say, I'm very humbled and proud to say that, you know, we live in a country where we can own a lot of awesome guns. And it's great, you know, and I love it. And I love the different technology. So American gun manufacturers have a huge weight on their shoulders. Excuse me. um, Because... Uh, you know, they've got to be able to please the civilian uh, market. They've got to be able to please law enforcement and military and exports and things like that. I mean, export business is a huge part of some of these uh, uh, companies that want to get military contracts and things. I mean, sometimes those military contracts obviously can be worth a pile of money, which is always good to infuse your business with capital. I mean, you look at uh, Marty Daniels, Daniel Defense. I mean, he's doing yes. stuff with, you know, department level and militaries, probably militaries and things like that, military contracts. Oh, for but sure. But then also killing it in the civilian uh, world and making sure that he's putting out products that uh, really, you know, are what the civilian world wants too. Which really, in America, those those lines are absolutely, completely blurred uh, when it comes to it's kind of weird. Like the stuff we put out on YouTube, for instance, when we're doing a video. Uh, all right. For instance, great example, meltdown video. Okay. So say we're doing a meltdown video and there's all, there's all this stuff going on and someone's watching. They're seeing what kind of abuse um, this gun can take or whatever. I mean, there's actually been situations where I've gotten like word back from one of my friends, like a local PD or at the sheriff's office and said, hey, uh, the sheriff watched your video on this and that. And like, man. That looks like a pretty tough gun, so we're actually going to get, you know, 10 of these to put into use as, uh, you know, car guns or as yeah. uh, SWAT uh, weapons or something like that. So, 
both civilian and law enforcement feed off of each other's sectors, right? Uh, you look at the Army Marksmanship Unit, all right, and that whole program and all of the work that those guys do. I mean, those dudes have Corbin swaging machines, and they're literally swaging their own projectiles, you know, swaging their own cores, doing all of that type of stuff, you know, using special lots of powder, developing loads. So, like, the technology goes back and forth. Then the guys out on the three-gun circuit are beating the mess out of all these gun designs, and the Army Marksmanship Unit, in combination with tons of other three-gun shooters, that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of figuring out how what stuff can go through and what it can't. So our our view, to get back to buy once, cry once, our view then becomes, okay, well, we have a higher expectation now for value uh, for what our dollar should produce for us in terms of a piece of, especially a piece of weapons technology, okay? Our expectations are much higher because the performance standards of said gear has increased so much over the years. Changes in propellants, projectile designs, manufacturing techniques, um, you know, lots of great barrel manufacturers out there like Faxon that are just doing a yep. great job on the OEM level. So there's tons of that stuff out there. And as that, as that technology grows, uh, so do the customer's expectations for how good that product needs to be. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, that's really where uh, the proverbial rubber hits the road is the the customer's expectation for what they're buying. And, you know, the whole buy once, cry once uh, mentality, it, to me, my personal opinion only applies if you are a, you know, a singular purchaser kind of, kind of person. So if you're only going to buy you know, one car, you want it to be the best. If you're only going to buy, and not only, but you, my habit is to buy one or two handguns. You want those to be the best. If you want, if you're buying a rifle, the best. Mo, I, and you know, most people that are in the firearms world or that's your, your hobby, you don't do that. It's, you want to build multiple things because you enjoy doing it. So you're buying, you know, tons of lowers. You know, I know guys that are buying them by the box. You know, you're buying a whole crate of lowers because you're building all different types of rifles, 300 blackouts, 5.56, you know, all like all different types. So if that's the case, you might not want to go and drop a bajillion dollars on a case of Daniel Defense lowers. Like you don't, you might, Anderson's might be fine and it's going to work. Uh, it's, it'll be just fine, but my mentality is I carry one rifle in my car. I have a rifle in my house. I have a shotgun. I have a couple handguns. I prefer to, to spend a little bit more now. All right. So I'm going to share a little bit of a behind the scenes, uh, little story here about Moss, uh, when I used to work at Moss Pond. And of course we're still, you know, great friends with them. They're great people and I still do business with them. I regrettedly don't get up there as much as I want to to go visit them, for, but uh, they're good people. And they're going through the same type of thing that all the other rest of the gun industry is going through right now with all the crazy stuff and all the you know, buying and just the supply and demand issues and all of those sort of things. Um, so those two things sort of blend together. But uh, I'll tell uh, a quick story is – when I was still there during that first uh, initial Obama gun scare, so, you know, when Obama was calling for, you know, assault weapons bans and all of this stuff, you know, um, back then, uh, we made a couple of videos talking about, you know, top five guns to buy before, you know, a potential ban. And it went crazy. It went absolutely viral. And we had all these folks coming in and just saying, hey, you know, what, what should I get? You know, well, we had this gentleman oddly enough uh and the owner of a korean grocery store all right oh, now, thank i'm, you. I'm thank sure you, you can you can see where this is going okay <laughs> uh but we had this gentleman come in and and he he indicated to us hey you know i run the korean grocery store up here in atlanta and i want to get uh, a couple of guns well long story short i'm not going to give every little tiny detail but uh he left with a with a with a scar <laughs> and a kimber and, you know, he left with a, a Benelli M4 and, a, you know, he bought, definitely didn't buy the beginner's guns. I mean, he, he got the nicest stuff, you know, he left with an ACOG on his, uh, on his scar and nice. <laughs> I mean, he you got kitted out pretty well. Oh yeah. And, you know, the gentleman ended up coming in and dropping, you know, 10 grand. So it's just kind of weird, you know, you think you, that certain people, 
you know, there, there's always this perception that, oh, that guy, you know, Jim Bob the Redneck that's got, you know, a giant room full of guns in his house, you know, oh, well, what's who's he? What's he do? Is that all he cares about his guns? And then there's a perception of, um, you know, the stereotype. There we go. That I'm trying. Yeah. That's that's the the perception and the stereotype are two different things, of course. But the stereotype, stereotypical, you know, white redneck dude uh, with a whole bunch of guns, and you know, what do you do, right? You know, and but you would never think that this, you know, little quaint uh, Korean man would just come in the door, and you would never think in a million years that that guy would drop that kind of cash on on guns. So, you know, looks can be deceiving in terms of uh, who you think has nice stuff and who doesn't. Well, I, I think that was the, uh, the epitome of buy once cry once. He probably came in there and if he, he's probably said, I want the best of these items. I want the best rifle. I want the best shotgun. I want the best this, because he, his plan was like, those are his go-to guns. Like he's not the kind of guy that's going to have 20 ARs. He's going to have one. And right. that, and that kind of go, goes back to, Hey, buy once, cry once, pick the best. And he, he may never, you know, it does, is that a, it is unfortunate. He's probably never going to train with those weapons, but he knows that they're going to work in a year, throw it, keep it lubed up, hit it, hit the button and you're good to go. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the thing. And you know, another quick story for Moss um, we, we love had, story time. Yeah, yeah. So, and and it's it's along the same lines, right? You know. So this uh, this guy came in looking at some guns, and you know he didn't look homely or he didn't look wealthy either. He just looked like an average dude, just like anybody else. And uh, he had some Reeboks on, sweatpants, um, you know, just a regular t shirt, and his hair was just done normal, whatever. And um, you know. Average looking dude, but maybe somebody looks like might have just left the gym or something. Well, anyway, he came in looking at some guns and uh, he's like, yeah, I want to get this, this, this. And he's like picking out a whole bunch of stuff. I'm thinking, wow, well, all right. You know, we're getting everything together. And uh, I think it ended up being like a shotgun and a rifle and maybe a handgun. And it was a bunch of ammo. He bought all kinds of stuff. And the guy breaks out this gigantic wad of $100 bills, <laughs> produces it. it from his his sweatpants pocket, which you know, his pants weren't even sagging around or anything. So it was kind of weird. Just bam, like yep. just a giant pile of money and just starts ripping out $100 bills to count it out. And the and the wad doesn't get any smaller. It just, <laughs> it just stays this big old giant <laughs> wad. And he you just, just peeled a layer off the top. Yeah, there just, you go. The top layer. Yep. and the, Yeah. But it's just weird how some people will wield their money around uh, when it comes to something that they've decided that they want. And we all know people like that, that go down the rabbit hole when it comes to a certain hobby. And uh, I'll quickly mention very quick. I don't want to you know go too much uh, longer on my part here. and Turn it back over to Matt, but I'll just mention too, that on the music gear side, I'm a big music nerd. Mm-hmm. We got a channel called guitar Sonal. I can attest to this. Huge I don't know nerd. if you guys are familiar, but we do produce some uh, little, little guitar videos too. Which I enjoy. It's just something I do really for me and for the folks that want to get into my nerdiness if they care to know what we're doing. But um, I've always been a real big fan of music, and I and I love different types of music gear. So for me, um, you know, getting down the rabbit hole of getting into you know some cool stuff to show off, um, it's the same type of thing. You know, I don't cheap out. Like I I, I buy what I can afford, but I buy good stuff, and I try to stick with. Uh, you know, good equipment and service it correctly and make sure it's up to snuff. I mean, all of that kind of comes down uh, to the same same sort of thing. I wanted to touch back on um, when you were talking about Daniel Defense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Daniel Defense is a great company. Uh, they put out a great quality product. And I know that there's people out there that have some issues with them. Let's just put all that aside. Let's just talk about the quality of, of the actual firearm itself. And I'll tell you what I think made them do so well was that they do make some excellent rifles for like military government contracts, uh, police forces, but they didn't make the same mistake that say Colt did. And they said, you know what we're, and it's the F one model. They, they take all their R and D and they put it towards like mill and Leo stuff. And then they say, you know what, we're going to offer this to the civilian market. There's really no difference between the the rifles. They're exactly the same other than the giggle switch. But other than that, the quality is the same. Uh, the accuracy, all that stuff is the same. And I would even beg to say that it's significantly less expensive than what the government's paying. Because whatever you price tag you see, 
Uh, and Knight's Armament is an example of that. When you see like the the M1, well, when they had the M110 sasses and stuff like that, this astronomical price, that is because that's what they offered it to a government contract price and they can't sell it to the civilian market for less than what they're selling it to the government for. Yeah. But with Daniel Defense, you're kind of reaping those rewards. And then you have somebody like Colt, which is like, they had to do that 180 recently where like, hey, we're not, we're selling to the civilian market again, but they kind of stepped on their toes and they said, hey, we're, we're, we're cutting off civilian sales. Big mistake. So it's always good to see companies stay true to that and, and say, you know, we're going to invest in this R&D and, and these rifles and these weapons and we're, we're going to give everybody the opportunity to have it. Uh, yeah, I think that's an astute observation. I mean, Daniel Defense has done a really great job of listening to their uh, customers, both LE and civilian and military um, alike. And I think they just infuse that into making their product, uh, not to sound like Billy Mays or anything, but they do <laughs> sort of infuse that knowledge into making their products better. I mean, there's no such thing as buying a Daniel Defense rifle that's got, oh, well, that's the scrap barrel that's in the B pile that's of right. the bad barrels. Yeah. There's no such thing as a bad Daniel Defense barrel. Like, you know, it doesn't, if it doesn't pass muster, it doesn't get built. Yeah. So I think that there's a certain respect that you got to have for your own product too and, uh, and everything. And uh, another group of people that have been doing a really good job with that is also Geisley. I mean, I remember early on uh, when Bill, uh, just was really doing only triggers. You know, that was his claim and continues to be Geisley's claim to flame, fame. Claim to flame. Well, flame and fame. <laughs> That's I'll, right. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> eat that mistake there. But the claim to fame being the triggers, obviously. And Bill was really smart early on by letting a lot of competition shooters uh, have his triggers. You know, he would go to these competitions and say, here, try my trigger and just give him a trigger. And you're like, well, well okay. And then, you know, you think, well, gosh, all right, free trigger. Well, let's throw it in, check it out, you know. And, and but it got his name out there because then he knew that on the competition circuit that guys are like, hey, what trigger are you using? And, oh, I think I'll try one of those. You know, it's like keeping up with the Joneses, right? Because yeah. it really is a premium trigger, right? I mean, for what a Geisley trigger costs, it's not an inexpensive upgrade. It is, they're pricey, right? But it, it's a, it, it just works yeah. that is they that, buy yes, once try man. once i'm telling you once you you people the only people that talk down about having an even like just say aftermarket trigger in general are people that don't do it they're they're, they're they just continue to use and there's nothing wrong with it but don't talk down on someone that's willing to invest in their firearm over like a trigger when you haven't even tried it because anybody yeah. that pulls the trigger on that is going to be it's going to put a smile on your face. Even when you're dry firing, you're going to, oh. It's like, so cool to yes. see all of the revisions in stock parts, um, you know, that that Bill has made over the years. I mean, all of the Geisley accessories are some of the best ones on the planet, you know, and he's done a great job of uh, infusing his knowledge base into a great product line that he knows is bred from competition shooters, Army marksmanship unit, uh, three-gun shooters, competitors, long-range shooters, uh, kooky YouTubers like me, I suppose, <laughs> have you know, maybe provided a few little little glimmers of uh, of, of opinion, but uh, really cool stuff though. Um, that's a great example. I mean, because guy, yeah, Mister Geisley stuff is not exactly cheap, but the quality matches what what you're trying to spend. And not not to be Billy Mays, I'm I do business with all of these people. I've I've bought all these products that we've talked about uh, in this video slash podcast here. Um, but yeah, I mean, Geisley is expensive, but for a reason, because you're getting a great product, really high quality, and their warranty, of course. I mean, if you ever have a problem with a Geisley product, you don't have to worry about somebody, you know, hanging up on you or not answering your email, which, I mean, it's happened to even guys like me, you know. Uh, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus or any bullcrap like that and, and go naming off situations. Yeah, that's not what we're here ultimately, for. Ultimately, it was all resolved, but I have had situations where I was like, hey, I broke this or that. Can you and and just hey, can I buy another one at a discounted rate? Like not even ask for them to replace it, and just crickets, nothing, right? You know, so customer service after the sale is also a crucial component to buying once and crying once, right? So if a product is okay, over engineered, expensive, crazy, not to say that any of those examples are, but if something has this crazy high price, a lot of times you better believe that that company is going to go out of their way. Uh, to do the right thing for the end consumer. And I'll, I'll quickly just mention LMT. Okay. We did a, um, a meltdown on an LMT piston upper. 
and I wound up having a bit of an issue. And uh, it wasn't even like that big of an issue, but they wind, wound up uh, determining that uh, the the replacement gas key that goes on the carrier that the piston interacts with when, you know, just drives it, drives the carrier rear, rearward against that hardened, uh, you know, recess there, that it had a heat treating issue. So they, and then this is the um, upper from the meltdown that LMT uh, did w- with us. Uh, they replaced the barrel, replaced the bolt, and upgraded me to a Nibix one. <laughs> And on the meltdown one. They did not know that I was doing the meltdown. That upper came in moss, brand new, and I bought it, and I was like, you know what? We're going to try to kill it, because I figured it would troll you guys a little bit to, you know, destroy an $1,100 upper, because, you know, that's <laughs> that's a pile of money to drop for an upper. LMT was such a class act about it. They were so kind. They did not give me a hard time. They're like, well, I mean, we've seen customers do some weird stuff with our products, but we've never known of someone to intentionally... Uh, you know, Melt do a destruction yeah. test on it. They're like, well, that's a little unorthodox, but you know what? We're gonna we're gonna fix it. And really, and they rebarreled it, and wow, like gave me a fresh barrel. I mean, I didn't expect that, but yeah, an LMT upper is a very expensive upper. An LMT firearm, a complete LMT rifle, they're not cheap guns. But that is what you're paying for is that's that right. level of customer service where they bend over backwards to take care of their customers. And I think there's a value to that. There most certainly is. And that, and I think you nailed it. That's exactly the level of service that you, that a customer would expect. The expectation is high because there's so much competition out there. Um, and you know, you have a choice of whoever you want to do business with. It really comes down to after sales service. Um, well, think about a microtech. Okay. Yeah. Microtech's an expensive knife, but if you broke one, do you think they're going to go, oh, well, that's not our problem? They're going to be like, no, that knife says Microtech on it. You're sending it here and we're going to fix it. That's right. And, and hey, if you screwed up and did something dumb, yeah, we'll, we'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll treat you right on the price, but you have to pay something. But if it's their fault, you better believe they're going to just, they, they're really good with that. And there's so many companies that unfortunately aren't that way. And that's not just the firearms. I'm talking about in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with like after service on uh, things you have done, I mean, if you're having something done to your house, like, and I'm not trying to bring outside influences, but like contracting work is probably one of the biggest things. Like if you have contract work done around your house, they're notorious for having like once you get the money, they're gone. Like you can't get a yeah, hold fly of by Yeah, you can't get a hold of those numbers change and you're in it for, you know, X amount of dollars around your house. And that's why you do have to do your due diligence regardless mm-hmm. of what it is. And even with products, whether you're and you know, there's companies that make turd guns. It's a turd slash lemon. It happens to everybody. Cars, they have a law, lemon law. It happens with cars. It doesn't matter what it is. It happens with firearms. You might get a turd or a lemon, send it back. It's unfortunate. But the the companies that are willing to stand behind it and actually, you know, serve the customer. Yeah, um, own up to it. Are the ones that, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, unfortunately happens repeatedly, but they still own up to it. Um, Right. And they do it. I mean, it's. I mean, I like the P365. I like the M17. I like the M18. I I like those guns, you know. Okay, so some of them had some drop safety issues. Well, it's a new design. Of course, you're going to have a little bit of teething that you got to figure out. Now, should that have been caught in the trials? Yeah, of course. Just like anything should be caught in some form of field trial or maybe not a field trial, but, you know, a testing uh, phase for uh, the application of a new firearm into a military MTO. Uh, So uh, the thing about that is, yeah, the 365 had the little primer drag issue and it was causing a few issues. And some people were breaking a few strikers in the early 365s. Of course, they seem like they've gotten all that worked yeah, out. Yeah, it looks like they worked it out. Uh, but, but it does look like a batch of M18s were just recalled, I believe. Um, they had a discharge and a guy got wounded with a. Okay, he so. dropped it or something. Well. Yeah. And that was recent. That was recent. And there's been, uh, there's been a couple of, uh, from different units. The one in the one that was from Canada, that was the one that I'm referring to. Um, they, they don't warranty maple syrup getting dropped down the gun, you know. <laughs> they were they were using they were, they were using the wrong type of holster. They were using a holster for a different gun, oh. and that's the thing about military service. Is, and we've been there. You modify your gear. I mean, you're cutting stuff down. If you have a holster, you're 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 cutting it to suit your needs. And 
you know, whenever you do that, unfortunately, it always puts the manufacturer in a precarious situation because they're like, yeah, it did happen, but you're using the wrong holster or you're, you were using it in a way that we never tested it. There's no way they could have tested that that firearm in that holster with that setup in that position. They're using, they're testing common stuff. So yes, it's, it probably happened because of user error. I don't think, I think they, they sorted all that out. It's just really weird. It's a weird and situation. And you and I did the video where we, um, we put like a thousand rounds through the 365 yeah. and that was after, gosh, I think at that point of the video, I think we're up to like maybe 1800 rounds out of it. Cause I know, uh, Tim Harmson over at Military Arms Channel, um, great friend of ours, by the way. Uh, hello. Uh, <laughs> but he, he, uh, so Tim ended up having issue out of an early 365, but in Tim's defense, Tim usually gets stuff pretty freaking early, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if there's he's a got new, the hookup, he, he's well, you know? he's got the new gun radar. So, yeah. like, something new drops, and it's like Tim is like waiting at the end of the production line. Like, all right, I'll take the first one, and let's see how yeah. this thing. And he's really got a hammer works. in one hand. He's yeah. like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if look, if it can break, Tim will break it. Yeah. But in Tim's defense, a lot of the stuff that Tim will get usually is a little bit, I don't, you know, early, right? So yeah. he'll be like one of the first people to get something, and sometimes I do too. Uh, we, I believe when they released the Glock 43 and the 42, I may, maybe not the 43, but I know the Glock 42. I was one of the first people to get my hands on the Glock 42 when it first came out. It actually caused a little bit of a controversy. Yes, it did. Uh, there's a little bit of a stink there and, and, and that I was, uh, uh, part of there, um, with Glock, but, um, we did get the gun early and uh great you know really cool it was it was neat to be able to put out a video on a gun now we didn't have any issues uh, out of ours and i believe that really the only issues they ended up identifying in the 42 and the 43 uh just from the guns being out there primarily was only the finish uh the different finish they were using just doesn't hold up quite as well as like a tenifer style finish would. right um but other than the finish being different um, the guns uh, have held up pretty good. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think there was any uh, performance issues. I think it was just like aesthetics. Um, but I mean, when you're talking about companies that way, that's they, they do have a certain standard. I, I hope that they would want to uphold on finishing. Well, I and think stuff that like the Tenefer can't be applied here because it's like bad for the environment <laughs> or something. So yeah, it, it's an EPA type of thing as to why they can't. Um, they can't apply t- a tenor for finish. That makes sense. Something to do with that. So I think they just black oxide them. Anyway, uh, buy uh, once, cry once, Glock. That's Send right. them somewhere and get them, <laughs> get the finish done a little better. Uh, back to the uh, the the Geisley triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we're kind of hopping back where it's, but I just wanted, I wrote something down. This is a quick note. Um, you know, things like triggers or like upgrades like that. You don't really mind paying, say, two or three hundred dollars for something like that, or even more, because it's instant feedback on on what's happening. So you can mm-hmm. literally drop it in user level. I mean, most people can. It's a user level thing. You don't have to take it to armor. Five minutes. Yeah, dr- uh, on an AR. AK is a little bit different. You, I sat there and watched you do AK. It was a little bit more difficult. Um, but on the AR drop in, but you can see instant feedback so you can feel it when you go out and you test fire it you can feel it you can you know it's shooting better and it's like you get those warm and fuzzies you're like oh this is what i've been missing out on this whole time and regardless of it's geisley or anybody else if you have a good match trigger i mean it's you know where that where that first aha epiphany was for me in in relation to that where was the first time that i own that i bought an acog Mm-hmm. The first ACOG I bought, I put it on there and I'm like, okay, here we go. We're going to play around with this. And I took it out to the range. I zeroed it and I went out and shot it out to about three or 400 yards. And I was like, yes, like this, this is the way. Like the first ACOG on, that's just how I felt. And uh, I do like the fact that you can get the Geisley mounts for the ACOGs too. So that there you're taking two concepts, right? An ACOG is a great optic right out of the box. But when you combine it with uh, Bill's, uh, mounts. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it's just such a magical combination. They're great. I couldn't say enough good things about those optics. No, and they're pricey. So another example: buy once, cry once. Uh, would be you know some optics are definitely you know you end up having more money in the optic sometimes in the gun. Yeah, I remember the first time we saw the ACOGs where when we were in Iraq we got we got the M2 red dots 
And the Marines that we were working with, they had the ACOGs. And that was kind of our first, or at least my, I know you were in this industry, even when we were in, in, but that was like, oh, wow, those are really, really cool. Like they're, they, I mean, they're really set up to shoot farther out. They were, they had a, the Marines at that time, their doctrine was a little bit farther of a engagement than, than we did when we, we had, but I really couldn't get used to the eye relief to me like it takes a lot of getting used to uh the eye relief that you have to have and when you look at pictures like when like those old school pictures back in like 03 04 um when we were there 05 you always see the marines like kind of have that that rifle up and it's like in a kind of a wonky position because they're trying to look through it it's it's not because of anything other than the fact that they have to get that close Mm -hmm. to get a good picture through the acog um, and that just always freaked me out, man. <laughs> yeah, those optics usually sit back a pretty good ways, yeah. and it is a different type of eye relief. But the idea behind that is that it's also it's very very quick to pick up and and find quickly. Oh yeah, that had and you great, can shoot with two eyes open. Yep. So that's the whole idea is that it's a very natural way of looking down an optic. You're gonna not gonna have as much uh, issues. Um, at all. I mean, it, and, and it comes up to the eye a lot quicker than an average rifle scope. And would. it's clear, like they used good glass. I mean, mm-hmm. it was very, very clear. Uh, you could see, I mean, when I would use them, like we would kind of swatch, swap weapons and kind of play around and stuff. Cause they would always come to us for batteries and like, we would, cause it was just a little weird, like a weird, uh, relationship. Yeah. But I mean, it was really cool, man. I appreciate it. That's my first, uh, introduction to ACOGs and yeah. I, I could just never get used to them. I like how they work, but to me, I'm more of a red dot with a magnifier kind of guy. That is fun stuff. So there's a lot of examples, guys, where, you know, the the buy once, cry once adage certainly makes a lot of sense. Especially uh, optics. I mean, we can go into a ton <laughs> of different things, right? There's so many areas that this could go into. Uh, we primarily kind of covered like vehicles and guns and watches. And you could say the same thing for jewelry. We, co- we talked a little bit about musical instruments. Same type of thing, right? Uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, guitars and amps that are very, very expensive, but obviously extremely good quality. Right. And you know that when you drop the coin on it, it's going to be a fantastic setup. Right. So, you know, like one, one thing that comes to mind, Paul Reed Smith guitars, I mean, they're expensive, but you get a great instrument, especially when you get into some of the mid tier models, maybe not the super private reserve ones, not the, the, the lesser, you know, entry level ones, but you get into the good meat and potatoes of their line. Uh, they are pricey, but they do make some fantastic, uh, instruments. So lots of that type of stuff out there, guys. Uh, cookware. Um, I know Chad and I, uh, if you guys are with me so far, <laughs> we're, we're an hour into this podcast. I know this is a long one, uh, but we are going to wrap things up. But if you guys haven't, make sure you check out, uh, Chad and I's new series on YouTube, Manly Meals. Uh, we're going into tons of awesome stuff, real practical cooking knowledge, uh, caring for your gear. Um, uh, you know, gosh, we did an episode on reseasoning cast iron. Uh, we're going to do ones on cooking steaks. We're going to do briskets. And, you know, we made some bread the other day. I mean, all kind of useful stuff. That bread Canning. was phenomenal. Oh, right. my God. And like in that, in that episode, we talked about uh, that first Mainly Meals episode. We discussed the All-American pressure canner. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good example. It's an expensive pressure canner. But it's good quality and it's going to last a lifetime. And that is absolutely in this particular podcast, that is the product of this entire podcast is that All-American Pressure Canner. Because people are like, wow, man, that's a $350 pressure canner. That's a lot of money. But they're built to last lifetimes. Like you could pass that down to another generation. I mean, there's All-Americans that are really old at this point holding up. You've seen some. I mean, I've seen pictures of just like, this is my grandma's or, you know, great grandma. Like they they last a lifetime. Yeah, they do. Um, it's just something you don't have to replace. And you can always go down the rabbit hole of like buy ones, crown ones, you know, regardless of what it is. I don't know how we're doing on time, but uh, I'll, I'll let you dictate that. But guys, just remember, if you want the best, you don't have to go out and break the bank. But at some point in your life, as you're moving, because everybody's goal in life is to move up, uh, you know, whether it's, through pay, salary, lifestyle, and no, you're not going to come out of the gate making X amount of dollars. And, you know, you don't have to have the best starting out. But, you know, if your goal is to have the best of something, then, you know, set goals and and get there. Yeah, I, I think that that's an astute observation. I mean, you've got you to have a realistic approach to everything, right? From controlling debt 
to, you know, making sound financial decisions to, you know, hey, if I'm going to spend my money, what, where can I spend my money in a way that's going to give me the maximum amount of value uh, for one money? Or can I put that money aside and maybe put a little more with it? And wow, if I go a little higher, I'm at this really great threshold uh, that allows me to get into a higher quality standard uh, for, you know, the perception of it really not being as much money. So, and then also having the knowledge to seek those products out and know what those products are. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about YouTube and social media in general. And this thing that's just really blown up in the last, you know, 10, 12 years of people having the free flowing sharing of information, it makes companies have to stay on their toes a heck of a lot more. Okay. Because they know that they're going to, people are going to get talking. And if you're making a turd product, they're going to call you out on it. So. And they'll do it just for the clicks. You know, that's well, that's half of the industry is taking turd products, putting them out on social media, and letting everybody know their turd products. So that's right. really that incentive of like, I need to make a good product. But the, the smart ones, though, are the ones that talk to their customers, right? You know, you, you say, oh, well, this particular product's got some kind of messed up issue. All right. And you go on social media and say, y'all need to fix this crap. This is, this is bull crap. Right. And they go, all right, we'll take your, uh, your thoughts into consideration. And then the next time you see something come out, they made the changes that the public requested. So, I mean, ultimately you got to sell your product to somebody. Um, you know, it has to be what they want. You can't build something that's what you want. You got to build what people want. Uh, there's a little bit of both. Well, <laughs> a great example of that, um, is what I, I think it was Strybog did with Tim. How he was, I don't know, it was a Strybog where he told them about the uh, the fix and they actually named that fix the Mac fix uh, because he was having some type of issue with mm-hmm. his, with the gun and he went back. Uh, oh, the Mac bracket? Yes. That was on the uh, the AKV, the Palmetto State okay, Armory. Yeah. So he went back, I mean, he could have sat there and just slayed them and, and did a whole video about why you shouldn't do this and why it's a bad gun. But he went back to him. He said, this is what I would do. Like, And they took his information, his feedback. They made the correction. And then they named it after him. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that uh, in, is what a good company does. Well, and then look at the Yeet Cannon. The high point. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You know, like that one started out as this big social media joke. And, and everybody's like, call it the Yeet Cannon. Call it the Yeet Cannon. And what they do, they named it the Yeet Cannon. Because... There's a certain degree, like you can't give in to the trolls, and there's certain situations where maybe you should give in to the trolls. Yeah, and that's kind of what they did. They're like, you know what? We'll show them, and then what do they do? People are buying the mess out of them because it's a, it's a meme. It's a gun that's a meme at this point. Yeah. So. And then there was a boat. Some there's a company that had a boat that did the same thing. They had a naming competition, and the name that one was called Bodie McBoatface, <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they actually they actually ended up naming the boat. It's on the side of the boat. Bodie McBoat face. Like and that I guarantee was it. they buy yep. it because they know that they were part of it. And that's what we do. Like we all have a collective interest, right? In making sure that we're putting our money in a place that gives us the most value in life. I mean, that's really what we all want to do, right? We know that we have a certain amount of money that we've got to be able to turn into something we want. So I think that it behooves everybody, social media, uh, you know, each other, just as people and all to, you know, encourage sharing the free flow of information or having the information being free flowing and natural and and people be able to just, uh, you know, talk about what they want to talk about. Guys, have a great one. Uh, We appreciate you tuning in on this podcast. If you're listening on on, uh, Apple Podcasts or any of the other outlets that we put the podcast out on, or if you're watching here on YouTube and looking at the camera now, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we are probably going to record most of these podcasts in video form on YouTube as well. Uh, you can tune in for that. That'll probably be fun for some of the taste testing and the flights that we do. Yep. Um, so we have a, uh, a, a flight or fight uh, episodes uh, that we do here on the podcast, and we take uh, different spirits, alcohol, and test them. It's really cool. Uh, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, so we have some of those coming up, and we do food and stuff, so... Uh, this is a lifestyle thing in terms of the podcast. I hope you can see um, if you're tuning in here on YouTube. We're going to put these up, and hopefully you guys can watch them and uh, you know check them out, share them with your buddies. We're well, trying to grow the podcast. Well, originally it was audio only, and that's what we intended. But you know the feedback, we receive a ton of feedback from you guys that are watching, and all of the feedback has been requesting that we put it on YouTube. And I know originally we weren't going to, but... 
you know, we, we do try to listen to the audience and you guys asked us to do it. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll do our best to, to do that. We are going to upgrade to a three camera system. So right now I've just got this one wide shot. That's all we've got room for. Uh, I am eventually going to do separate cams for he and I and a wide shot. And that should add a little bit more, uh, hopefully of a more natural appeal, you know, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say a little bit more uh, personable or you know yeah, I think approachable. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we weren't originally set up to do uh, video because it was audio only, but uh, we are gonna because we're putting it on the channel. We're gonna do a little bit more production value, so we're gonna add a couple more cameras, make maybe make it a little bit more homely, and uh, you know, oh, it's homely. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so just stay tuned, uh, stay with us, and we'll we'll get better. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully, we'll get better. Okay. <laughs> Have a great week. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. This has been Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. Have a good one. Go in freedom. Live happy. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Everybody. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.